The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you uh, can't preach after that, it's because your wood is wet. Just so thankful for our musicians and those that lead us into God's presence. We're in Romans chapter 11. We're going to start reading at verse 1. This is the living and abiding Word of God. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, They have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen, that is the remnant, obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for For the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I somehow might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. So, we've been traveling through Romans 9 through 11 for quite a while now. And Paul has been dealing with Jewish unbelief and then the the apparent related problem. And I say apparent, the apparent related problem of God's faithfulness to Israel. And in a sense, Romans 9 through 11 deals with these massive sweeping truths that that span the, the whole scope of redemptive history. These massive sweeping truths have to do with God's sovereign purpose. And as we, as we look at the text today, I, I was just reminded that in a world that demands that everything be about me, sometimes it's good just to step back, see the big picture, and realize who's the real hero of the story, right? Sometimes it's good just to stand there at the Grand Canyon and not say a word and just gaze at how glorious that is and then how small we are. And so this section in Romans is one of those big pictures that show us that God is the true hero. God is the one who's working all things out after the counsel of his will and his purposes are massive. 
And it's not as though we are unimportant to God because we are important to God, but we're not the most important thing to God. God is about God, not about you or me. Now, that may be a shock to some of you, and um, you might think, well, I could have stayed home and known that. Um, But Romans 11 is going to drive something home for us that's going to recalibrate, I hope, recalibrate our hearts. You do know, um, coming into this place, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, singing the songs of Zion, both old and new, hearing the word of God, being with fellow believers, it recalibrates our hearts in a world that is constantly pushing us out of alignment. Right? We're, all, we're being pushed out of alignment every day. The things that we hear, the things that we see, the bombardment of the spirit of the age, and it is coming in to this place as God's people, singing something that we're going to sing forever, just has a way of realigning our hearts to remind us what's really important. And so in Romans 11, Paul, Paul is in a sense giving us a big picture of what God is doing and the stuff that's really important. And so in, in Romans uh, 11, 1 to 6, Paul asks this initial question. I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? And of course that question, as we've pointed out, is the natural question. Because he's made a big issue in Romans chapter 10 about Israel's unbelief. And not just Israel's unbelief, but Israel in a sense rejecting God's outstretched hands to them as he offers them pardon and mercy. And so there is this natural question based on the fact that Israel's rejected the righteousness of God because they've rejected God's Messiah and they sought to make their own righteousness, to pursue their own righteousness, and they they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And here they are, and, and they are rejecting the very thing that can bring them life. And so on the basis of of, of all of that from 9.30 to 10.21, it's very natural that Paul would then say, so has God rejected his people? But as we've already noted, Paul answers the question of whether or not God has rejected his people with a double negative answer. One is an implied, has God rejected his people? Implied answer, no. But that's not good enough for Paul. He wants to make sure everybody understands because then he gives us a meganoita. That is absolutely not. Implied answer, no, he's not rejected his people. Emphatic answer, he has absolutely not rejected his people. And so then what Paul does is Paul gives evidence in in two ways that God has not rejected his people. The first is this, God has a present elect Jewish remnant, and Paul says, and I'm exhibit A. So it goes like this, has God rejected his people? The answer is no, look at me. I'm an Israelite, a tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Jew. God hasn't forsaken me, and so he's exhibit A, but then Paul moves in the argument to demonstrate that God's always had an elect remnant, and he points back to the believers during Elijah's day, and so Elijah's day ends up being exhibit B, and so the first answer to has God rejected his people uh, whom he has foreknown, the answer is no. Proof A, look at me, I'm a Jew, he's not rejected the Jews, and Exhibit B, this is the way God's always worked. God's always had a remnant. Even back in the days of Elijah, when it seemed as if the whole nation was apostate and Elijah thought he was the only one left, God turns around and he says, listen, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 is not very many, but it's more than one. Then... 11, 7 to 10. And so Paul then now explains why, in a sense, there's so much Jewish unbelief. 
And his answer is troubling, okay? People don't like what Paul says here. And, you know, all I can say is if you, you don't like it, when you breathe your last, you'll have an opportunity to take it up with the author, but I don't think that will be the first thing on your mind. Paul's answer is, the elect remnant has actually obtained the righteousness of God because they've embraced Messiah, who is, in fact, the righteousness of God. But the rest, and that's Paul's language, the rest, that is unbelieving Jews, they were hardened. So that is, the rest were under a judicial hardening of God as an act of divine judgment. And then Paul takes that difficult doctrine Nobody says this is, this is one of those doctrines that warms the cockles of your heart and you just want to sing how great thou art, okay? But the fact is, is that Paul takes this difficult doctrine, he supports it from Deuteronomy 29.4, Isaiah 29.10, and then the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 69, 22, and 23. And so this is, this is the movement, all right? Has God rejected his people? The answer is no. I'm a Jew, there, were, uh, there was a remnant in Elijah's day, and so what Israel was seeking, it hasn't obtained, but election has obtained it. The rest were hardened. That brings us to verses 11 to 15, which is our text this morning, and there is, there is something that's really powerful about verses 11 to 15. It's absolutely crucial to the development of Paul's argument. And so this is going to require you to look at your Bible. It's going to require you to to listen and pay attention carefully. And so um, for those who who might be challenged in those ways, I'm going to give you just a quick second to take a deep breath, get get lots of oxygen, and hopefully some of it makes its way up there. All right? So Paul now moves and he asks the next logical question in light of what he said in 7 to 10. Notice the question, verse 11, I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Okay, so that, that is obviously the next logical question. If God has brought a hardening on the rest, then have they stumbled, that is, have the Jewish people stumbled so as to fall into irreparable ruin? That's the question. He answers the question in the same way that he's already answered the other question with an implied negative and then uh, emphatically. And he answers the question and he tells us why God has brought what he's going to identify as a partial hardening on Israel. And then he answers whether or not that partial hardening is permanent or temporary, and then he asks another question, explanation, and then he talks about his own ministry to the Gentiles. So if you are a Gentile, Paul has direct address to you today. And all the Gentiles said, amen. Now, what Paul's going to do is Paul is actually going to present to us his present hope as the apostle to the Gentiles and his future confidence of what God is going to do among the Jewish people. Now, the whole passage hinges on several words, okay? So let me just give you those real quick. So the, 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 the first significant set of words is in the question, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery. Obviously, that frames the whole argument at this point. But then you have these words that are specific to Israel. Their transgression, their trespass, their loss, their rejection, all right? Then you have words that relate to the Gentiles, salvation, riches, reconciliation, riches, right? So so you get the idea, words that relate to the Jewish people, transgression, trespass, loss, 
rejection. Words that relate to the Gentiles, salvation, riches, riches, reconciliation. Then, after that, it goes back to words that relate to Israel. And these are the words. How much more fulfillment, acceptance, and life from the dead. Now, what's happening in 11 to 15 is what uh, John Stott calls... um, Ricocheting grace, okay? Because in a sense, the grace of God is going to go from Israel to the Gentiles back to Israel, all right? So, are you ready to dig in? Verse, that was weak. People in Phoenix were much more happy to see me. Notice verse uh, 11. I say then. Now, just go back and look at 11.1. I say then. So what Paul's doing is he's repeating this little I say then. And what he's, the, the purpose is, is he's advancing his argument based on the question that he poses in the middle in verse 7. And so here it goes. Israel has not stumbled so that they fell beyond recovery, question mark. Stumbled, all right? So what does he mean, Israel stumbled? So if you just turn back to chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 30 because that's where the The paragraph starts, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Now notice, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Now here's it. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And so, when Paul asks, um, they've not stumbled so as to fall beyond recovery, the stumbling that he has in mind very specifically is their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And understand this, that to reject Jesus as the Messiah is to reject the righteousness of God, which Jesus the Messiah embodies and offers. Okay? So you you can't reject Jesus as Messiah and then still hold on to a righteousness from God. Jesus is the righteousness from God. So let let me just say, as as a footnote, if you're here and, and, and maybe you're not a Christian, the only righteousness you could ever have that will make you acceptable to God is the righteousness which is found in Jesus Christ, okay? So the way that you get the righteousness that God requires is you believe in the righteous one that God sent and he clothes you in his righteousness. If you, so this was the Jewish problem, they thought, we'll do it on our own, thanks. We have the law, thanks. We can do the law, I mean, how hard is that? And so what they end up doing is by trying to earn their own, they reject the very righteousness that God has brought through his son. And so that's what the stumbling was. It was rejection of Messiah. And so they have not stumbled. And then here, here's the interesting part of the question. With the result that they've fallen beyond recovery. So Paul's question is, is this, is this stumbling, is it a fall that is, that's irreversible? Is it a fall that's irrevocable? Have they fallen, think of it this way, have they fallen by rejecting Jesus as Messiah and being judicially hardened by God? Have they fallen into such ruin that God is now done with Israel? Implied answer, no. 
emphatic answer, absolutely not. May it never be. And so now what Paul's going to do is he's going to explain why God actually brings this hardening, because that is the big question. So if Israel has not fallen so as to be beyond all repair and recovery, then why has God hardened them at all? Paul's answer is stunning. He says, second part of verse 11, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make the Jews jealous. You go, what? (laughs) This is exactly what Paul says. That by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So just follow me. Their transgression, that is their rejection of Christ, their rejection of the gospel, their rejection of the righteousness of God. So by their transgression, salvation comes to the Gentiles. What Paul's saying is, is that God has a purpose in their transgression. God has a purpose in in their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Now, make no mistake about it. Just because God has a purpose in it doesn't mean that they're not morally responsible for the decision that they've made. They're completely responsible for the decision that they made. But through that decision, God has a purpose. And the purpose is, is that as the Jews reject Christ in the gospel, the gospel in turn then goes to the Gentiles. Now, you, you read through the book of Acts, you know this is, this is the case. And I just want you to look at just a couple of texts with me. Acts chapter 13 Hey, Nathan, can you turn the fans on? One of the deacons turned the air down to about 52. (laughs) All right, so here's Paul. What does Paul do? Who does Paul take the gospel to first? To the Jews. So here's here's his mission strategy got the gospel, takes it to the synagogues first, right? There's a synagogue. That's where Paul's going first. And so that's what he does in Pisidian Antioch. And so next Sabbath, everybody's there to hear the word of the Lord. You see that in verse 44. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. So here's Paul trying to preach to the crowds. The Jewish people are are contradicting, saying terrible things. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, notice this, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you repudiate it. And notice this, judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Now, Paul says that's God's purpose, but he also says, by rejecting us, Jewish people, you're actually judging yourself as unworthy, right? So in other words, moral responsibility. Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, I've placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. And so here's the pattern. The gospel comes to the Jewish people. Jewish people hear it. They contradict it. They blaspheme. They don't want anything to do with a, with a crucified Messiah. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We're not going to worship a Messiah that was cursed of God. Paul's whole point is, there's no salvation unless Messiah was cursed by God. But God remedied the curse and raised him up from the dead. And the Jews say, we don't want nothing to do with it. So then Paul says, all right then, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are sitting there and they're like, oh, goody. Who are the Gentiles? They're the outsiders. They are the, they are the Hagoim. They're the Gentile dogs. They are the ones that, that 
<laughs> They'd been hearing from the Jewish people for a long time. Hey, one of these days, we're going to trample you under our feet. And the Gentiles are like, well, that doesn't sound very fun. And so here they are listening to Paul. And Paul says, now the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are thrilled. And they believe the message. And the word starts to spread. That's what Paul's talking about. By the way, this pattern happens at least two more times in the book of Acts, where Paul takes the gospel, the Jews reject it, he turns to the Gentiles. It's how the book of Acts ends. And so Paul says, so so their transgression, their rejection of the gospel is for the salvation of the Gentiles in order to make the Jewish people jealous. Now, I just want to say that if you and I were writing this, that's probably not the next line we would have put in. Right? Their transgression leads to the salvation of the Gentiles in order to get rid of the Jews once and for all. Right? That's, and Paul says, no, Salvation goes to the Gentiles in order to make the Jews jealous. (laughs) Now, so in a sense, it's a sort of a curveball, right? This is a little bit of surprise. And so if, let's say you're a Jewish person and you're hearing this and you're like, hold on a second. You're telling me that because we didn't believe what you said about Jesus, the Messiah, and then that message went to the Gentiles, that's now somehow supposed to make us jealous? Most of the Jews assume they were already righteous, they were already heirs. They were already children of God. They were already in the kingdom. And so here's, here's, here's the point in a sense. If the Jews had preceded the Gentiles or let's say been saved apart from the Gentiles, it would not have accentuated God's mercy. If God had, had bypassed the Gentiles altogether, just stuck with the Jews, saved the Jews in their current understanding regarding the righteousness of God and their own righteousness and all of that, it would have seemed that salvation was based solely on Jewish privilege. When God takes that gospel of salvation and says, all right, you deem yourselves unworthy. I'm going to give it to the goyim. I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it to the dogs. They're like, wait, what? what?" You mean to tell me that you're taking what belongs to us and you're giving it to them? And so at the end of the day, here's what's clear from Paul, and that is, by doing that, he's showing none of us deserve mercy. Right? At the end of the day, what he's showing us is that we all deserve justice. God is sovereign, and he pours out his grace not on those of Jewish privilege. He pours out his grace on Gentiles who have no no right to claim covenant privilege or relationship, and God ends up doing this absolutely amazing thing, and the design is to provoke Israel to jealousy. And so if you just look at the end of chapter 11, it'll be a little while before we're there, so we can take a sneak peek. Verse 30, notice the way the ricocheting grace, notice the way it works. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And so God cuts off the avenue to the Jewish people. Jewish people are miffed over this. God turns around, pours out covenant blessing on Gentile dogs that don't deserve it. And God God gives to the Gentiles, gives to the nations, the Messiah, the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life, and they receive mercy. Now, Paul says, but, 
if th- th- this, is, this is so gripping to me. He says, but if their trespass has become riches for the world and their loss riches for the Gentiles. So just, just hang on to that. But if, notice, notice the ricochet. Their trespass, rejection of Messiah, rejection of God's righteousness has now become riches, spiritual riches, a salvation in Jesus Christ for the world. That is the non-Jewish world of the Gentiles. So their trespass, their loss, that is their defeat, their overthrow, their deprivation now becomes riches to the Gentile, Gentiles, which parallels the world. And so here's, here's what Paul's saying. It's really, it's amazing. And that is their trespass and their loss has positive benefits for the rest of the Gentile world. We wouldn't be here today if it weren't for this reality. The name of Jesus Christ, God's Son, would not be praised this morning in, in Zambia if it were not for this reality. This reality is what has taken the gospel to the nations. But notice, Paul says... But if their trespass, if their loss has resulted in riches for the world, then he says these wonderful words, how much more will their fullness be? I will tell you, that little phrase is in escapable because what Paul is doing is he's setting up for us a lesser to a greater argument by that phrase, how much more, and it's absolutely crucial to what he's doing right here. So follow it. If their trespass, if their defeat, if their loss led to the salvation of the Gentiles, how much more Will their fullness or their fulfillment be? You you, do understand there's a play on words of loss and fullness. What is their fulfillment? What is their fullness? I think that what Paul has in mind is the idea of of the full number of the elect Jewish people that he has determined to save and that there's coming a day in which there's going to be a much more. So, hang on to that phrase, much more, because Paul then now addresses the Gentiles. So, if you are a a goyim, then just a goy, then just pay close attention I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So Paul says, okay, so that's, that's what God's doing with the Jewish people. That's how you benefited. And you could imagine some Gentile guy sitting there going, you know what? I don't really care about all this Jewish stuff. I'm saved. I'm in Christ. What do I have to care about that? Let's get on with my benefits as a Christian. Tell me how to have a happy life. Tell me I have a good marriage, right? Just get on to something practical. Paul, quit wasting my time. I don't really have any interest in this Jewish question of yours. And Paul says, well, you should. He says, so first of all, inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles. So this is, this is Paul's commission. He had been set apart, Romans 1.5, Romans 15.26, to do what? To take the gospel to the nations for the obedience of faith among the nations. Right? So that's Paul's ministry. Paul is supposed to go where the gospel's not been proclaimed. Paul is a pioneer missionary. Paul is actually going into, into areas that, let's just say, would have made his Jewish skin crawl. 
you do understand there's something peculiar about Paul being apostle to the Gentiles. Do you know who Paul would have been a great apostle for? The Jews. Right? Pharisee. Trained, trained under the best rabbinic minds of his time. Did he know the Old Testament? Oh my goodness. Did he know how Jewish people thought? Did he know how Jewish Jewish people thought? Yes. Did he know how Hellenized or Greek Jewish people thought? Yes. Why? He was a part of both worlds. Okay. So here's Paul, who is, who is like, just like Jew par excellence. Right? Intellectually, educationally, religiously. But God doesn't work in the ways that we think he ought to work. Right? So he takes... He takes this guy that would have been like one of the best Jewish missionaries you could ever imagine, and Paul says, I want you to go to the Gentiles. Now, Paul's not in any place to argue, right? You don't get knocked on your keister by the risen Savior and then argue about where he sends you, okay? And so, Paul goes to the Gentiles. And here's the amazing thing, is that as he goes to the Gentiles, he goes to cultures that are radically different than his. He goes to people that he doesn't understand. He goes to, he goes to people who, who a lot of them don't even know about Moses and the law. And so here he is out of his comfort zone. And what is he doing? He is doing his best to minister among the Gentiles. And so when he says, I magnify my ministry as apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. That is, I do my utmost to fulfill my calling and mission to the Gentiles. I am actually laboring and striving with the power that works in me, spending and being spent for the sake of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm willing to suffer for the cause of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul says, and if truth be told, here's one of the reasons why I do it, so that I can provoke my kinsmen according to the flesh to jealousy. If I, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, seed of Abraham, whole nine yards, if I can go and actually demonstrate gospel mercy through Israel's Messiah to the Gentiles, and I can provoke my kinsmen according to the flesh to a point of jealousy to where, why is he doing that? Why is he offering them mercy? Why is he talking to them about our Savior? And if I could provoke them to see that they need the same mercy and the same grace, then I might be used to save some. That's what Paul says. Provoke them to jealousy in order that I might save some. Now, Paul knew he wasn't the Savior, but the idea was that in the present time, some may be saved. The very ones that he pours his heart out for, the very ones that he says, I wish I myself, if it were possible, would be a curse from Christ, cut off from my kinsmen according to the flesh. The very ones that he says in, in, back in uh, chapter 10, that he has unceasing grief and sorrow for his people, Israel, according to the flesh. And so Paul says, I do what I do because I'm fulfilling the call that God's given me, but I hope that in doing this and as I engage the Jewish people and they see what I'm doing, that that might provoke them and they might be saved. think that Paul could say in good conscience that he lived his life and fulfilled his ministry in a way that made Jesus look desirable. He lived his life and carried out his ministry in such a way 
that even his kinsmen, according to the flesh, on occasion might say, I want what he has. I want what he's offering. Is there not a lesson in that for us? Is there not a lesson in living out our faith in Jesus in a way that we make Jesus look desirable? If people look at your life and they just go, yep, another Christian. And our life does nothing to demonstrate the beauty and the glory of the Savior. then we're not walking in a manner that's worthy of Christ. Have you, have you not found him to be fairer than 10,000? Have you not tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you not drank at the fountain, life-giving and free? Have you not just stood in, in awe of what you were and how God pulled you out of that miry clay? Our lives actually should just be a testimony. Even if the person says, I don't believe what they believe, but I sure wish I had the peace that they had. I just saw them go through suffering. I I just stood at a graveside with them. And the way they talk... And the way they hold their head. And even the way that they weep. There's something different. And I want it. So here's the apostle. He says, I magnify my ministry. I pour myself out. I do my utmost. And then he says, and I'm like out of time, but I got, I got cheated on the time this morning. Daniel prayed too long and Ashley played too long and we started late, I think. So Paul says, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might provoke to jealousy my kinsmen and save some. So what Paul's doing is he's thinking, so right now, as Paul looks at himself and looks at the gospel, looks at the Jews and looks at the Gentiles, he says, you know what? God can use me to be saving some, but that's not where he stops. He then says, for if their rejection is reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance be? Except life from the dead. And so this is, in a sense, this is another ricochet Their rejection, by the way, that's probably not their rejection of Jesus, Messiah, but God's temporary rejection of them in partial hardening, okay? So if if that rejection by God, God's temporary rejection of them leads to him reconciling the Gentiles to himself, there there is this wonderful antithesis. If that rejection leads to reconciliation, then what is their acceptance gonna be? If their rejection juxtaposed to their, to their acceptance, again, what he does is another lesser to the greater argument. Their acceptance is God's acceptance of them, which is bringing in the fullness of Israel. And Paul says, that's nothing other than life from the dead. Amazing. You see the way God's grace just ricochets back and forth, Jew to Gentile, Jew to Gentile, Jew to Gentile. And so here, he just simply says, so guess what? If, reconcili- if rejection equals reconciliation for the world, oh, what is their acceptance gonna be? By the way, I don't think that their acceptance simply has an impact on the Jewish people. I think it has an impact even on the whole world. 
So in other words, right now, there is a partial hardening in which the majority of Jewish people reject Jesus as Messiah. That leads to reconciliation between God and the nations. And if that's the case, then what in the world is when when God embraces them, when God accepts them, when God brings them back, when, if you will, when God saves that fullness, what is that going to be? It's going to be Life from the dead. This could be, of course, spiritual life in Christ. Some people think it's final resurrection. I'm not altogether sure, but here you have, you you go from trespass, rejection, loss, to now fullness, acceptance, and life from the dead. So John Murray says Israel's rejection was not complete, but partial, not final, but temporary. So here it is. God has a design in Israel stumbling and falling. And that design is that salvation would come to the fullness of the Gentiles and that Israel would be provoked to jealousy and that Israel would be accepted back. And then salvation would come to the fullness, not only of Israel, but to the whole world. John Murray again, I just... I scribbled this down this morning, so I hope I can read it. While it is true that in respect of privilege accruing from Christ's accomplishments, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, and Gentiles are now fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, yet it does not follow that Israel no longer fulfills any particular design in the realization of God's worldwide saving purposes. Okay. Application. First, Paul was optimistic about the ultimate outcome of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You do see it, right? I mean, you have to have both eyes closed not to see it. Paul was incredibly optimistic about the ultimate outcome of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. Gentiles were being saved. Gentiles are being saved. And it continued to go to the Jewish people with some being saved. But God's plan moving forward is a gospel that is both for Jew and Gentile, right? Here's the... Paul's vision of the present time is a gospel that goes forth for both Jew and Gentile and both Israeli and Palestinian. The gospel is no respecter of what flag you fly. And that gospel that goes forth is just as much for Israelis today in the secular modern state of Israel as it is for Palestinians. Because God's plan is that the gospel would be used to call forth his elect from the nations and from the Jewish people. And so as we move towards the end of all things, I don't know when the end of all things is going to be. The end of all things could be the end of today. And the end of all things could be during the time of my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. I have no way of knowing. Now, from my human wisdom, it doesn't seem like things can last that long. I don't know about you. Okay? But as we move to the end of all things, we should pray that God would save Jewish people. And we should pray for this crisis in the Middle East 
and pray that God would turn many of the sons and daughters of Jacob to trust in Jacob's Savior, Jesus Christ. And in our zeal to see this, let us remember that it is still the time of the Gentiles. And so let us pray that this crisis and a thousand others would be used to turn many hearts, many Arab hearts, many Muslim hearts, to trust in Jesus Christ as the only son of the true and living God, the son of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. May we pray that during this time, God would not only turn many hearts of the physical seed of Abraham to himself, but that our Savior would look on the fruit of his suffering and be satisfied. Because there are men and women and boys and girls from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Father, what will their fullness and acceptance be but life from the dead? Father, we thank you that you're working out your plan and we thank you that you're, you're not in the dark, you're not second-guessing, you're not relying on plan B or plan C. We thank you that our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. And Father, we pray this morning that you would be pleased to provoke many Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh, to jealousy, to believe in Jesus, the Messiah. And we also pray that you would be pleased for this gospel of the kingdom to continue to spread among all the nations. Father, we pray that even today, our own hearts would be realigned with the truth that Jesus Christ is our only hope in life, and in death. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.